Third service, final service, always my favorite service because my preaching time can extend about three hours. And so it's my favorite service. Uh, One of my other favorite things to do growing up as a kid was playing hide-and-go-seek. We have a lot of kiddos in here, and I know how much you enjoy hide-and-go-seek. Now, I enjoyed hide-and-go-seek because, uh, fortunately, I was really good at it. I was really great at finding places that no one would look, uh, mostly because I would hide in some terrible places that no one would want to hide, and no one would even think to look. Uh, On one occasion, I was at my cousin's birthday party, and uh, before the party started, all the kiddos got together and wanted to, you know, to you know, waste some time before the cake and the presents. And so we played hide-and-go-seek, and I hid. And I hid so long. As a matter of fact, three hours later, the party was over, and I was still hiding. And uh, I was hiding so long, uh, they sent out the search party called my parents. And you know you've caused a problem when your parents are having to come look for you. None of us want our parents having to come look for us, because you know there are going to be consequences at the end. But I was stubborn, and I thought I had such a great hiding spot that I didn't want to ruin it, and I just wanted to wait until somebody thought that they had the intelligence to match mine and come find me. Well, that was just foolish, and... uh but to the point, I really, really loved playing hide-and-go-seek. I loved hiding and trying to outwit people so they couldn't find me. Now, although hide-and-seek was my favorite game, uh, hide-and-seek is not God's favorite game. As a matter of fact, God doesn't like playing hide-and-go-seek at all. Uh, because the fact is that God is pleased to reveal himself to anyone who has a genuine desire to diligently search for him, and upon finding him, that they would turn from their sins and they would trust in Him. That's the good news about the kind of God that we serve, is that God is not trying to hide from you, and He's not trying to hide from me. He's not trying to outwit us or outsmart us or outmaneuver us so that we couldn't find Him. God has made Himself plain to see, and that's His desire is that we would diligently search for Him, because in doing that, He is pleased to reveal Himself to you and to me and to the rest of the world. Now, The problem is that there's many people uh, who believe in the facts of the Bible or the facts of the the incarnation of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ. There's many people who believe in these facts but have never truly found God because they have never, upon seeking Him and searching Him, have turned away from their sins and trusted in Him. And that's what it means to truly find God. If someone asks you, have I found God? Well, you find God by, upon seeing Him and knowing Him, that you would turn from your sins and trust in Christ. Anything else other than that is just a mental assent to the facts. You know, I believe in a lot of things because they're factual, but I have not given my life to them, nor have I made them my own. Uh, and this Christmas, the hope of Christmas is that all of us, upon searching and finding Christ, that we would not just nod at Christ as a factual historical figure who was born and died and rose, but that we would, upon those facts, turn from our sins and trust in Him as the bearer of the iniquity that we have, and upon trusting in Him, that we would be found righteous in the sight of a holy and just God. Now, Today in Matthew chapter 2, and you can turn your Bibles open there, maybe one kid in the left hand, a Bible in the right. Uh, In Matthew 2, we're going to encounter two examples of how the world responds to the news of Christ. Uh, And there really are only two responses to the news of Christ, and we're going to see both of them clearly here in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Follow along with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now, you may have asked yourself this question for years, and rightfully so. You ask, well, who are the wise men? Who are these people, and what are they doing in uh, Jerusalem? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Some of your translations, if you look, it may say the word magi. Well, the problem with uh, who these magi are and who they aren't is we don't know because we don't have a transla- translated word from the word magi. Actually, magi from the Greek is just magos, uh, and they have just, instead of trying to help us understand what that title means, they just slapped it over from Greek into English and said, figure it out, okay? Uh, and so we're left with the hard work of figuring it out. And so uh, a lot of people try to transliterate the word wise men because that's pretty generic. You know, they're just wise guys. Uh, but it would help you and I to know a little bit more, a little bit more about who these people are. Uh, wise men uh, were uh, people from the east, as it says, and throughout Scripture we find evidence of the wise men. Uh, one of the most famous areas you can see this is Daniel chapter 2. And you see the wise men uh, in Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, when Persia took them over, you then see them again, uh, just kind of transition in kingdoms like any good uh, submissive person would. And now they are these Persian magi, and that's where you actually see these magi coming from, is from Persia. And you see them coming from Persia over to Jerusalem, and then you ask the question, okay, I get where they're from, but who were they? What did they do? Well, uh, it's hard to know in our English, uh, using our English words, but I want you to think about it this way. Uh, a lot of people think the Magi were uh, uh, astronomers, but they weren't astronomers in our sense, because in our sense, astronomers take an objective look at the sky, and they say, well, that's just Jupiter doing what Jupiter does, and that's just Saturn doing what Saturn does. Uh, instead, the wise men looked at the stars, uh, and they made assumptions, theological assumptions, based on them. And so you could look at wise men as theological scientists or scientific theologians because they didn't just look at the stars and, and, and kind of point out facts about the stars. By looking at the stars, they made assumptions uh, based on the lens of their theological understanding of the world. And so uh, it's hard to say they're not just scientists, they're not astrologists because uh, they are monotheistic and they believe that God was moving and it was among uh, these people and had something to say to us. And so it's best to look at the Magi as theological scientists. And in that, you can now see why they, when seeing the star in the sky, being monotheistic believers in their own right, would say, huh, that must mean something. Now, the question you should have now is, well, how does it mean anything? How did they know it was even coming? Well, back in the Old Testament, when the, when the Magi or the wise men or the theological scientists are introduced, uh, you can see them in Daniel chapter 2. You remember Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, the you know, really faithful, uh, devout Jewish prophet who was thrown in the lion's den because he would not bow to the king. Uh, this same uh, Jewish prophet was also in chapter 2 uh, given authority, and he was actually the head of the wise men. In chapter 2, you should go look at it. It's actually, I'll tell you exactly where it is. Well, Daniel chapter 2, I think it's in verse 16, or maybe at the beginning. In chapter 2, you can flip there and see that he was made head of the wise men of Babylon, which also became Persia. And the good news about this is any devout Jewish prophet is not only going to tell them what God is saying to them now in the time of Daniel the prophet uh, during the Babylonian and Persian Empire, but Daniel's also going to do this. 
He's going to teach them all the things that he was taught as a Jewish man. So he was going to teach them the prophecies of the Old Testament, of the Torah and the law. And so uh, these magi, as they are looking at the stars throughout history, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, they were also then interpreting them in light of the things that Daniel had told them through the century. And as they learned it from Daniel, these magi for centuries and centuries passed on that information to the very wise men that we see here introduced into the story who saw the star, remembered what Daniel had taught them in the Old Testament, and they are now at Jerusalem to see the very child that they have been foretold for generations and generations and generations, even in a place that wasn't Israel. That's a good news in the book of Matthew, because the book of Matthew is all about how Jesus came not only to save the Jewish people, but all people, Gentiles included, which is you and me. So that's good news that these, these uh, magi knew about the coming of our Lord and how God wants to reveal himself to anyone who will diligently seek him. That's the good news this evening, isn't it? Now, what we see here is we see the wise men who have come to do one thing, to worship him. And we need to understand that the wise men were highly esteemed men in history. I mean, uh, they affirmed kings. I mean, they, a lot of things they did were very esteemed. They were very highly sought after people uh, and very powerful. But the crazy thing that I want you to notice here, uh, they recognized one thing for sure. They recognized that they were not the king. They recognized that they were not the one in authority. They were looking and willing to submit to the one who was in authority. Now put a pin in that. Because now introduce the second character that we find here in Matthew chapter 2, and it's Herod. So when Herod heard this, look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard about the birth of Jesus and the wise men coming uh, to find the baby born king of the Jews... When Herod heard this, he was troubled. In the Greek, that's, he was troubled. He was really upset. He was beside himself, him and all Jerusalem with him. There's a problem with this, even if you and I are just thinking biblically. Uh, Herod, although he was not a, a Jewish king, he was actually an Edomite. He was put into power uh, by the Roman Empire at the time. But even though he wasn't Jewish and he wasn't a Jewish uh, king, uh, he was from the area, and he had a lot of really close friends who were Jewish. And so those Jewish friends would tell him a little bit of something about the Old Testament and the promise of the Davidic king who would be born in Bethlehem. Now, what's important for us to see here is, is, is King Herod was not a very nice guy. Uh, you may know him as uh, Herod, the, the, child, the, the guy who killed babies, and Herod, the mean guy who wanted Jesus gone, but history knows him as Herod the Great. And Herod was such a paranoid king that he even killed his sons so they would not take his throne. Now imagine that. You have sons. If you have sons in here, I hope to have sons someday. And we look forward to when our sons take our place. We look forward to when our sons will take over the family business someday. We look forward to when they graduate high school and they graduate college. We look forward to when they score a touchdown on the football field in peewee football that doesn't mean anything. And you're still like, that's my boy, you know? And that's a normal father. But we have such a paranoid man who's trying to rule his own life and trying to, and trying to manipulate life so he can do whatever he once, and he goes so far as to killing his own sons so that they would never take his place. That's the kind of guy we're talking about here. 
And although that he was a, he was a non-Jewish king, he ruled in Israel, uh, we have to understand, and Matthew teaches us this very clearly, that God's plan was always to have a Jewish king ruling in Israel. That's what we call the Davidic covenant. And if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been talking about that. But suffice it to say this, when we read Scripture, especially in Matthew, which we're in right now, uh, God made it very clear that there will be a day where, the Jewish, where there will be a Jewish Messiah, okay, and his will come from the Davidic line, the line of David, who was King David. And so they promised that the king who will be to come will be from that line, and he will be from the city of David, which was Bethlehem. And so what we're going to see here is how King Herod, unlike the wise men who was willing to submit and worship the king, we have this other propped up king uh, who believes that he can manipulate God and manipulate things in such a way where he never has to submit his life to God. Now, the bad news for us here is uh, many of us are Herod. At least we were all Herod at one point in our life. We, we were ruled on the throne of our own life. Uh, we manipulated the system so that we could always get our way and we never had to submit our lives to God. Uh, but the good news is my prayer is that many of us have turned into wise men and wise women over the years by realizing that we aren't the kings and queens of our own lives, that we all have to, at one point in time, recognize why Christmas exists realizing that Jesus has come to save us from our sins and that we would turn from our sins and trust in Christ. Now, the problem with that is uh, Herod, in his own pursuit of his own desires, wasn't willing to do one thing that's really important, something that the Magi were willing to do, something that Herod wasn't willing to do, and it was this, to accept their position in God's economy. And that's point number one, if you're, if you're thinking this out loud. You need to accept your position in God's economy. And really what that means is this, that uh, no matter if you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you just started Chick-fil-A last week, uh, you are on a level playing field. And we are all uh, accountable to a holy, just God to uh, make recompense for our sins. And the problem is either we do that right through our own lives, which are impossible to do, at least to justify us. We're all found guilty in the presence of a God. So for us to pay for our own sin would be to be the wrath of God to be poured out on us. Now, we all have to understand it's either going to be us who do that or we trust in Christ to do that on our behalf. Now, accepting our own position in God's economy obviously means that we all understand that we're on the same level. Isaiah 53, 6 says it this way, uh, we all like sheep have gone astray. And so here's the, the example, CEO or Chick-fil-A associate uh, last week, uh, we're all what the Bible will call a sheep, right? We're all the same level, okay? You might be a buff sheep, you may be a chubby sheep, you may be a good looking sheep, you may not be a good looking sheep, but we're all sheep, okay? And here's the thing about these sheep, there's something we all have in common. We're sheep and we've all gone astray, and it says, as a matter of fact, we have turned away everyone to his own way. And so here's the fact. We're all sheep, and sheep aren't known as the most intelligent creatures in the world, and we think we already know that. Uh, but we're also doing our own thing in our own way, how we want to do it, unwilling to follow the good shepherd who the Bible calls Christ. And it's important for us to understand that on this level, we've all turned away from God. And Christ was born, and that's what Isaiah 53, 6 says, and the Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. And so all of us need to understand uh, our position in God's economy in that this, we're all sinners and we've all gone astray. And we all have to recognize, it don't matter if we're King Herod or the, or the wise men or Mary and Joseph or a Hayden or, or whoever you are in here, we are all on a level playing field and we all need to recognize our position in God's economy. Now, there's two parts in recognizing our place in God's economy and the first one is to recognize that we're all sheep and we've all gone astray. Now, the second part is this, and it's found in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, and it's realizing, okay, if we're all on the level playing field, there's still somebody above us, 
And here's what it says about the one who is above us. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Did you hear who is above us? We're all on a level playing field of sheep who have gone astray. But there is one whom was born, king of the Jews, one who was born to save the world from their sins. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at that very name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. See, we have to understand in God's economy, we're all on the same level, and there is Him who is born King of the Jews. His name is Jesus Christ, who is above us and is above all things. And God has actually propped Him up so far that there is nothing that is outside of His purview and authority as the Lord of the universe. And the only way that we're really going to accept that is to humble ourselves before God. Uh, if you don't humble yourself before God, you're not going to accept this. Uh, and the proof is really already in the text of King Herod. I mean, King Herod, uh, we're going to hear in a moment, even hears the coming of the, of the king who be, who's being born king of the Jews. And it even goes as far as saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea, the city of David. He, he learns all the truths about the coming Messiah, and he's still not willing to humble himself and accept the coming king whom God has placed in this time to fulfill uh, the promise that God would bring someone to forgive us and save us from our sins. Now, we have to understand that for us, uh, especially in this day and age, I want you to understand this. And you may have not been posited this way in your life, but I want to do it, and maybe it'll change your life starting today. Uh, often when you're, somebody shares the gospel or you've heard someone share the gospel, they'll say things like this. Uh, would you be willing today to accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? And I don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Uh, but here's a, a problem. Uh, we say things like it's a personal decision, it's a personal faith, it's between me and God. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's really not. And I'll put it this way. If you look at Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it says this, that uh, he's been highly exalted. He's the name above all names. Listen to this at verse 10. So that at, the sa- at that name, every knee is going to bow. Is it just the people who accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? Are those the only one that's going to bow here? No, it says that every knees should bow. Now, in verse 11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that just the people who accepted Christ as his personal Lord and Savior? It's everybody. And so there's a danger in saying that, would you accept Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Well, there's truth to that, but here's the untruth about that. No one is going to have a choice on whether or not they worship Christ as Lord. He already is Lord. You just have the opportunity to recognize that today or recognize that for eternity. And as I often like to say, I would just like to go now and just become really good at that. So by the time Christ comes back, I'll be really good at bowing my knee to Christ and, and, and uh, affirming him as my Lord and my Savior. Now, the truth of the statement that I made earlier about accepting Christ as your Lord and Savior is that Christ will be Lord of everyone, but only Savior of some. And that's where the truth is found in this, that Christ is going to be Lord over everybody. No matter if you want to submit to him like the Magi or you don't want to submit to him like King Herod, you're going to have no choice but to be uh, lorded over by Christ. That's good news for those of us who would also make him our Savior by turning from our sins and trusting in him. And that is what Christmas is all about. But it's going to take humility, right? And that's really what it's all about. No one's come to Christ without humbling themselves before him. And we see that plainly in Scripture. Because it's in humility that we take an honest look at the Bible. 
uh, without humility, we'll never accept a thing the Bible says. You know, uh, in pride, we're going to say, well, who wrote the Bible? I get that all the time. Who wrote the Bible? Who even did that? And we'll tell you, the Bible tells us who wrote the Bible. Well, how is it written? Well, we'll tell you that too that tells you that. Well, aren't there no uh, extant original manuscripts of the Bible? Yes, but there is no extant manuscripts of any ancient uh, historical document in the history of the universe. Uh, however, in Scripture, we have the most uh, oldest manuscripts of, of the original documents of any ancient document that has ever existed. So we can have that debate of the intellectual capacities and the reliability of Scripture and the truth of God's Word. We can do that all day. But if you won't look at it objectively and humble yourself before the truth of God's Word, it's not going to amount to a hill of beans whether or not we talk about extant manuscripts until the cows come home. The truth is we have to be able to willing to humble ourselves and to seek out the truth of Christmas. And that's exactly what we see happening unfolding in verses 4 through 9. Go ahead and look at it with me. We need to take an honest look at the truth. And sometimes taking an honest look at the truth takes a good amount of work. Let's just look at that work. It says in verse 4 that Herod, he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so at this point, uh, Herod didn't know when Christ, where Christ was going to be born. The Magi didn't know. And here's what the chief priests and the scribes, the really smart Jewish people, said. Well, of course, verse 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, prophet Micah, in Micah 5, 2, and we'll get there in a minute, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And I wish you'd have kept going, because Micah 5, 2 is such a great prophecy of the coming king, because it says he's going to shepherd the people Israel, but if you keep going in Micah 5, 2, the next statement is literally, his comings are from long ago, from the ancient of days. I love that. I mean, that's like so good because it's like this person is going to be supernatural. Like this person isn't going to be uh, an- just another person from the line of David that somehow uh, squeezed his way into the kingship and somehow the politic- socio-political climate figured its way out in such a way where now Israel is the top dog again. It was none of that. I mean, this person who's coming to shepherd my people Israel is from long ago. His comings are from the ancient of days. And so we understand there's an explicit prophetic announcement that whatever is about to happen in the birth of this, this king and this person who's going to shepherd Israel is not just a normal human being. I mean, this is, this is something supernatural. This is something uh, that has deity uh, all over it. Now, this is the a pronouncement that was made. Uh, he's going to shepherd my people Israel. And look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. These theological scientists told them, here's when it appeared, and and here's what he said in in verse 8. And he sent them, the wise men, to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Uh, Here's uh, what we need to understand about taking an honest look at the truth. We have to do it diligently. right? We have to take an honest look at the truth, and then we need to go in obedience to discover the truth. I'm not telling you to go discover your truth, or it's out there somewhere if you just let it come to you. I'm saying that God has revealed himself, and his desire is that we diligently search for him. Just like the star of Bethlehem, it rose, God had promised it, it was going to rise, and it was going to point out the coming of the Messiah. And then the wise men, although they didn't know much of anything else, they just knew what Daniel had told them. They didn't have the rest of the Torah. They didn't have any of the 
New Testament like we have, but they saw that the truth that they did understand about God, they acted on it, and they walked in faith all the way from Persia all the way to Jerusalem. And then they got before King Herod and before the chief priests and the scribes, and they asked more questions. Well, where is he going to be born? We're here, but we need to know where. And they say, in Bethlehem. And so as soon as they hear that, they go to Bethlehem. Do you see the continual obedience these, these magi went through to go find the truth about Christmas? Do you see that? I want you to see it with me. But there is another person, Herod. And here's what Herod said. I mean, he was alarmed earlier and beside himself. You'd have thought that he would have uh, hitched a ride on his pony, saddled that thing up, and went to Bethlehem as quick as he could to see if this was true, right? I mean, you think if he's that alarmed, he's going to go figure out if this is true. And this is what he says. Okay, you guys go. Y'all go. Search real hard, okay? And, and when you find him, can you just come back and tell me? I mean, do you think of the attitude it takes for somebody in so much pride and, and so much just, just how full of themselves they are that they say, you got, you go find him. Uh, and when you find him, can you come back and tell me about him? I say that because when we're diligently searching for Christ and we really want to know the truth about things, we're not going to sit back and let other people go do the work for us. Right? I mean, if, if you truly want to have a, a relationship with Christ and you truly want to know the truth about the Bible and about Christianity and about uh, the gospel of Christ, you're not going to cross your arms and suffice it to say, well, I, I guess, I mean, somebody else can tell me all about it. No, I mean, you're literally going to go search and you're going to do the work it takes to truly know the God of the Bible who has revealed himself to us that we may know him. Like, you're not going to be Herod and tell somebody else to do the work for you. You're not going to say, oh, I go to church on Sunday because that pastor, he, get, he went to school for that and he gets paid to do it. Uh, you're going to say, that's all of our job, to diligently seek and search for Christ. Now, we need to understand that Magi, the wise men, and Herod both received the same information here. They both knew the exact same thing about the coming of Christ, but it was the, how they pursued the information that set them apart. One went after Christ to find him, and the other one sat there and made it no commitment to Christ to go diligently search for him. And that brings me to the second point that we need to understand this afternoon is that we need to diligently pursue the truth of Christmas. Like, I mean, we, we do. I mean, that's, that's what it means to be Christian is that we're pursuing the truth of Christ. I hope nobody in here has ever made a decision to follow Christ based on a foundation of nothing. I hope that you have a foundation in Christ because you have searched the scriptures like a good Berean, that you have, that you have tested yourself and make sure you're in the faith, that you have counted the cost as the gospel says, I'm going to count the cost to make sure that this is worth it. I mean, you do need to make sure that this is worth it. Because it's those people who have tested themselves to make sure they're in the faith. It's those people who have, have counted the cost and, and seen if this is worth it. It's those people who have been good Bereans and they read the scriptures and they search them to find the truth of Christ. It's those same people who when the waves come and the winds blow and when life gets hard, they're not going to be the people who waver. They're not going to be the people who lose heart. But it's those whom asking other people to do the searching and asking other people to do the hard work when, when life hits them in the face and they've never really searched the scriptures and they don't really know anything about God, that's when they're going to realize that they had no faith at all. And in these days, we call that, well, people who have fallen away. But my Bible teaches of, doesn't teach of any true faith that falls away. We teach of one faith that is steadfast and immovable and is ever waiting on the return of Christ. And that's why in order to have a relationship with Christ, we need to diligently pursue the truth of Christmas. 
Scripture teaches us how we ought to seek Christ and seek God. In Jeremiah 29, 13, uh, God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says it this way, you will seek me and find me. So here's the key. You want to find God. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Did you hear that? You're going to find God. God said, I'm pleased to reveal myself to people who would diligently seek me. And he said, you're going to seek me and you're going to find me when you seek me in pride uh, and just trying to get to know everything you need to know. That's what he said, isn't it? That's not what he said. You want to find God, you've got to do it and you've got to do it with all your heart. There's some of you in here that look more like James 4, 3. Uh, well, I've been looking for God for 30 years, and he's never revealed himself to me. You, know? you say that, and James 4, 3 says this. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. I know so many people who would never submit their lives to God, and they've spent their whole life uh, accumulating knowledge about the Bible and about religions and about God, not because they wanted to submit their lives to him and, and, and make sure that they could pursue a, a worthwhile uh, relationship with God, but so that they could use it to amass ammunitions to attack Christianity, to attack people who would want to posit them some faith that they could never put their trust in. And so they amass all this information, not to search and diligently search for the truth, but so they could have ammunition so when people tried to tell them the truth. And there is, no, there is in no manner or any way that God would reveal himself to such a person. See, a genuine pursuit can look different for many, but it is always diligent. Right? He's always, he's always diligent. And I, and I say it this way. There's a lot of people who are, who are intelligent. I, I, I encounter a lot of really intelligent people. And there is nothing wrong with an intelligent, genuine pursuit of the knowledge of Christ. We talked about it a little bit earlier and, and trying to figure out the historicity of the Bible, the, the reliability of Scripture, who wrote it, why is it written, all those things. Worthwhile journeys. But all of them should be diligent and they should be to get you to a place where you're ready to respond to the gospel of Christ. I put it this way, that there's a difference between a genuine intellectual journey to the cross and a cynical skepticism veiled in intellectualism. Did you hear that? I mean, there's literally a difference between you trying to search the scriptures and search history and search science and search facts so you can get to this point where you can give yourself over to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a difference between that and, there's, and between you saying, well, let me know everything you want to tell me and I'm never going to desire to come to a conclusion. I never want to come to a decision of following Christ. There's a difference between an intellectual journey leading to salvation and a cynical skepticism that you veil in. Well, I just, you, can't, haven't, you haven't won me yet or you haven't persuaded me yet. The truth is no one's going to persuade you because you've never humbled yourself and allowed God to work in your life to get you to a place of repentance and faith in Christ. See, God's desire is that you draw near to Him and you do it in humility and that you would seek Him through His Word. And His Word is what we call the Bible. And the problem is we live in the Bible belt and every time I say open your Bible, you miss the grandeur and, and, and the significance of Scripture. Because Scripture says, it calls itself this. It testifies about itself in this way. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Do you know the Greek word for breathed out by God is theopanoustos. It means it's literally God spoken. God literally spit it out and it's on, it's on paper. It's God's thoughts about man. This isn't man's best thoughts about God. This is God's very thoughts on paper. And, and, and people just talk about the Bible, how it's not God's Word, and how God doesn't really reveal too much. And it would be like somebody looking at my wife and saying, your husband doesn't love you, and he's, he, you know, he, he doesn't care anything about you. And my wife being able to pull out 66 letters, which is how many books are in the Bible, uh, pull out 66 letters and say, open it up. And this is what my husband has said about me. He's literally wrote it down and given it to me. 
This is what he has to say. And what are they going to say about that? Well, are, those, are you sure those are your husband's letters? Are you sure he means what he says he meant? You know, I mean, that's what, that's what people do with the Bible. But it's breathed out by God. Theopanustos. It's inspired. It's, it's been spit out, put on paper for us to have. And we got to look at it and understand that God has revealed himself through general revelation, through special revelation. By creation itself, God has declared his, the attributes of his power and his glory. And we get to know those things about God. And it is only a Herod and a fool who would not understand that God has revealed himself to his people. And the wise men knew it. We need to seek him, and we can do that through his word. We need to read the Bible, but we not only need to read the Bible, we need to respond rightly to the truth found in the Bible. Now we get to this idea of response. And, and there's, in verse 10, I want you to look at verse 10 in Matthew 2. We get to this response uh, that the Magi and Herod had to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And here's what it says in verse 10. When they, the Magi, when they saw the star, listen to what they did. Here's their response. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Do you see, once they understood their position in God's economy as sheep who have gone astray, seeking for the truth of the coming king of Israel, they understood that they need to diligently pursue the truth that they were given about the coming of Christ, him being born in Bethlehem. They go and they journey and they find themselves uh, where? At the home, not the stable at this point. This is later on in history, okay, a couple years perhaps. Uh, they're at the house now of Mary and Joseph. They knock on the door real nice with a ring doorbell. They saw it was the Magi. They opened the door and they came in and they fell down and they worshipped him. That's the proper response to anybody who in discovering the truth about Christmas ought to have. And that is to fall down in humility and worship the king. Now, verse 12 says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed from their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the king to destroy him. Now, this is our other response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And many of us try to do it. We try to arm ourselves with all this information that we talked about earlier so that we could eradicate, to truncate, to, to create no room at the holiday dinner for the gospel of Jesus to come out. That we create no room for my Christian uh, family to come over during holidays and New Year to talk to me about Jesus because I want to destroy it. I want to destroy any opportunity for the gospel to come out of somebody's mouth at my dinner table. I want to destroy any kind of intimacy that my relationship with my family could have because I don't want anything to do with Jesus. We're the, we're the people who want to destroy any opportunity for the truth of the gospel to get out. And that's the same thing that Herod wanted to do. He didn't want Jesus to be king. He was the king. And so many of us, we destroy any opportunity for the gospel to come out in our lives because we want to be the Lord of our life. And we want to be the king on the throne when the king of the throne was never ours to have in the first place. It was always Christ alone. Matter of fact, Herod goes so far into Matthew 2.16 as Herod kills all males two and under in Bethlehem and all the region. So he wants to do everything he can to eradicate the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because he wants nothing to do with it. And what I'm saying this afternoon is we have to, like the Magi, we got to realize that there's a proper response of humility and falling down to worship the king. And we can't do that by trying to get rid of any semblance of the king. We can't do that by trying to get rid of any gospel conversation that needs to happen in my family. 
and, and to really call us Christians out, we can't allow people trying to eradicate the truth of Christ to keep us from propagating the truth of Christ. When we go see our family tonight and tomorrow, we've got to be the ones willing to say, we've got to share the gospel with our family and our friends and our neighbors because it's the truth of Christmas and that's why we're celebrating. Because the first act of this kind of worship the humble falling down on your knees, the first act of this kind of worship for anyone is to recognize that Jesus is Lord and to turn from a life lived for yourself and turn to a life lived for God. And we do that by turning from our sins and trusting in Christ, that he would be the substitute for our rebellion against a just and a holy God. And that means the only proper response that we could have to the good news of the gospel this Christmas season is to repent and trust in the good news of Jesus. And that's the final point this afternoon is we need to repent and we need to turn from our sins and we need to trust in the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the only response that we can give that leads to the forgiveness of sins. A lot of things we can do, we can truncate it, we can get rid of it, we can turn a blind eye to it, we can close our eyes and pretend that it didn't happen. But the only response that's going to get us anywhere in the economy of God is that we return from our sins and trust in Him. And, and, as, and as we're closing, I mean, really just to hammer down this idea that God has revealed Himself very clearly and said exactly how uh, you stack up in the economy of God. We're all sheep gone astray. And here's how uh, we can fix that problem. God makes it very clear. There's no hidden agenda here. Because as a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the, the gospel of Mark, chapter 1, 15 verses into the beginning of Mark, which means it's at the beginning, like you can't miss it. This is what Jesus literally says when he's coming onto the scene for his earthly ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I mean, there is no more clear statement to make at the beginning of anyone's ministry when people ask, well, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, I'm here for the kingdom of God is at hand. The time has been fulfilled. You need to turn from your sins and trust in the good news that I have been born king of the Jews, that I have come to take your place and to take your sin, to put it on me, and I'm going to take it to the cross. I'm going to nail it up there. God's going to pour his wrath out on me. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to be raised, and I'm going to be forever at the right hand of God the Father. Literally what Jesus said in the Gospels. And that's the truth that we still have to respond to today. And the fact is that we have to all respond. And that's why the Gospel is more than a belief. You get it. You can nod your head to believing everything that I just said. You can. I believe what you said is true. Great respond to it. The gospel demands a response that anyone who would call on his name would be saved. Anyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And that's why this is more than a belief. It's a call to action. It's a call to forsake your life. It's, it's a forsake a life, live for yourself, and to submit your life to God. And we see that through how the Magi responded. That they realized that they weren't the king of their lives. They searched for the truth of the king. And when they got to the king, they submitted to the king. Let us uh, this afternoon be like the Magi and not be like stubborn Herod who would never take himself off the throne of his own life and place Christ where he ought to be. Let us be the Magi. Let us turn from our sins. Let us trust in Christ that we too could be called sons of God. Pray with me. God, we do pray. I mean, I just pray. God, as we've been praying for weeks and weeks that more people would come to know you, that more people would be saved through the proclamation of the gospel. And what a more, no more perfect time than right now during Christmas for people to come to know you and to come to turn from their sins and trust in you. For your name, even Jesus, comes from the word Yeshua, and that means that God saves. And what an what a amazing opportunity we have to hear about you proclaiming salvation to lost souls. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray, and you have come to see us, the overseers of our souls, to find us, 
to save us. And this Christmas, I pray that we see many people who have come to know you. And I pray that if anyone's done that even today, that God, that they would tell somebody that they, for the first time in their life today, have turned from their sins and trusted in you as not only their Lord, like we all will one day, but also as the Savior of their soul. And I thank you for all you've done, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.